Hello, everyone, and welcome to Speaking with Joy, a podcast to fill your soul, challenge your mind, and make you brave. I'm your host, Joy Clarkson, and an evangelist for all things good, true, and beautiful. So make yourself a cup of tea, find somewhere comfortable, and let's dive in to this week's episode. Welcome back to Reading with Joy, a summer book club exploring Clara and the Sun by Kazuo Ishiguro, a story from the perspective of a robot about what it means to be human. Today, I am excited to introduce my guests who are joining me to discuss part four. Welcome to the show, Dr. Michael Burdett and Dr. King Ho Lung. Yeah, thanks so much for for having me um, on the podcast and and joining this conversation. So my name is Michael Burdett. Uh, my day job is I'm an assistant professor of Christian theology here at the University of Nottingham. Um, I have a background in, in engineering, actually, have, have done some work in robotics in the past. Um, but my day job mostly consists of teaching people uh, Thomas Aquinas and Lonevo theology and um, systematic and philosophical theology for newcomers. But what I do on, I shouldn't say on the side, it is the kind of one of the main researches I work on because I have this background in engineering is things related to theology and technology and to have thought, published, uh, <laughs> slaved over ideas that technological culture is um, is raising, um, certainly mm-hmm. for, for who we are as human beings, but also specifically um, as uh, people of faith. Well, I'm really glad to have you on the show and I was excited to talk with you specifically because I wanted that conversation between theology and technology. I think sometimes in layman's terms, we can kind of imagine that science and technology and religion and questions of meaning and spirituality are, you know, to use the technical term, non-overlapping magisteria, right? That there's kind of, that these things can't have conversations with each other. But one of the things I find so fascinating about this book is that almost as soon as you look through the eyes of a robot, you have this kind of engagement with something like, like God, like a benevolent creator who she relates to and prays to. Um, So I'm very excited to have somebody with expertise to help us kind of unpick this specific, specific element of, of Claire and the Sun. All right, your turn, King. Um, hello, I'm um, King Hola. I'm a um, senior research fellow here at the University of St Andrews. I uh, mainly run a research project called uh, Widening Horizons in Philosophical Theology, and I teach a bit of philosophy and religion here at St Andrews. But I'm this coming year, I'm also going to be teaching on St Andrews's master's program on um, in theology and the arts, and I'm going to be teaching a section on um, phenomenology, which is a uh, philosophical method and school of thought, and how that how it's engaged with the visual arts in particular, but also the broader arts in general, and how the perception of art teaches us about how we perceive things in general, and so on. And so I'm quite interested in, in you know, how concepts work and how that affects the way we think. So what, how what we think affects how we think, uh, and particularly in relation to how, you know, technology, for example, it, how does technology as a phenomena inform the way we think? How do we think technologically when we engage, when we spend more time on an iPad or talking to Siri or your Google Assistant 
or something like that. So yeah, it's been very interesting to to be reading this book and to you know connect it to some of the things I've been thinking about. I'm very excited to chat with you. Also, it's worth noting that the masters that uh, you are teaching on is, of course, the masters that I did many moons ago. Uh, not too many moons ago, but closer to a decade ago than not, which is a bit frightening. Um, now, am I right in saying that you all have written something together? Yeah, it, it, uh, certainly King and I have, a, I assume, a mutual admiration society <clears throat> um, kind of uh, going here. We, we wrote something on uh, an ontology of information, um, and it's an essay, which will, I think, be meant to be coming out in, in the next, it's meant to be the next six months. Um, but it's kind of looking at uh, certainly how technology shapes uh, how we think about the world, but what we think is most basic. What does reality really consist in? And then um, how certain kinds of ideologies around technology, like transhumanism, I, that mm -hmm. I assume we'll be getting into, um, are shaping our perceptions around what we think is most really real. Do we think it's material? Do we think it's spirit? But we argue that actually we're seeing more and more things as most basically information these days. And what difference does that make to how we understand ourselves, how we understand something like nature and the supernatural? Mm, light stuff. Well, um, <laughs> I'm very excited to chat about this chapter with you all. Uh, before we dive into the specific scenes that each one of us felt were significant in part four, how have you all enjoyed the book? I know you've both finished the book, so we're, we're all going to have to exercise self-control and not foreshadowing the ending. But how have you enjoyed the book generally? What have been kind of your, your impressions, your feeling of the vibe of the story? What surprised you? If I may just start. I mean, what struck me ongoingly, I think, is the way in which Clara describes the sun. And th there is something... And this is kind of coincides with some of the stuff that Michael and I have been thinking about on how, you know, uh, technological developments often, you know, uh, we expect might move us further away from a theistic or religious way of um, understanding reality. But actually, um, perhaps technology actually gives us some ways of rethinking um, uh, the world as we perceive it, including, for example, whether let's assume that Clara is a robot um, or something like that. Um, actually, how can robots actually teach us how to perceive the world? And actually, uh, in the chapter we're going to talk about, Mr. Capaldi actually says AFs have so much to teach us. And, and so I, and kind of, I, part of me also almost wants to take Clara seriously and say, well, what if we actually think of the sun as this kind of deity that is personal, the he who is the sun, who mm -hmm. um, nourishes us, and um, you know who we who we actually try to commune with in some way, and that kind of recovers what we might call an enchanted worldview. I find it interesting. I, I noticed you talked about this in one of your previous um, episodes in terms of how Clara sees, for example, the mother as the mother, and people according mm -hmm. to certain roles. If we're being less generous, we might think of this as kind of you know being quite a reductive way. You you reduce this person down to her function but in another way we can say well actually there's something you're not seeing it in terms of her function but her purpose so mm. there's a sort of strong sense of a of a purposeful world mm. in mm. which clara sees all things and you can say that well 
that's actually almost quite like a traditional, a pre-modern <laughs> account of reality. Mm. You get this hierarchy of being, so mm. so to speak, where people where people have their fitted roles um, to perform in a in a greater order, a greater chain, and that's mm. full of meaning. And that all, if you go with a certain um, so quote quote unquote primitive view, revolves around the sun as the source of light, intelligence, and if you will, goodness. Uh, and well, nourishment, as Clara would put mm. it, um, and you can see sort of the language of you know the sun's pattern. You know, so there's a pattern mm. to things, a rhythm, an order mm. um, that is, uh, and that we're called to play our roles literally in light of these patterns, and and so that we can flourish according to our fit, uh, fittingness. I love that, and I think uh, quickly I'll say that that was I think one of the things that attracted me most to this book is that. Uh, last summer, we read Piranesi by Susanna Clark, and that is narrated from the perspective of this character who is in the house and relates to the house in this almost godlike way. And it was, it's this very enchanted kind of worldview. But the thing I found fascinating about this book is that you have a similar dynamic where there's this sense of the order of things, of the personal nature of the kind of the, the, the being that is related to like God. But it's surprising because we have this idea that technology would always lead us to, as you said, a, a more mechanistic, um, less meaningful, less spiritual world. But that there's a sense in which if you truly believe that there is, that something like God created the world, then why would we, we be afraid of, that there is this, we'd be afraid of what technology might do, but there's no reason not to assume that within these things, we might actually learn something more about the world. Um, and, and more about meaning. And I love that it almost implies that if you create a consciousness, it will stumble upon the sun. It will stumble upon this kind of almost natural theology. You look like you have something to say about that, Michael. No, that, that you're all anticipating all the wonderful, delightful things um, that uh, are paramount and, and so intriguing about, about the book. And the whole idea that I think if you, as you've, both picked up that Clara actually sees this as an artificial entity, not only sees the purpose, but has a sense of the sacred. I mean, every time she goes into the barn, it's it's as if going into a temple, you know? Um, and certainly the way I think Ishiguro, um, the way he writes, um, very different from other, I mean, he himself says he, he doesn't, like genre in general, but whatever is is useful for him to to tell the story. I mean, this is a kind of science fiction, but it's not a kind of focus on um, technological measurement or being accurate to kind of science. But it's about a, a kind of well, what would this world kind of look like? Um, what would it mean to inhabit it, especially if it's a kind of sacred world that even even artificial creatures could somehow had some kind of relationship with to, to to the divine, and so um and that's the very title of the book, which certainly bespeaks that this is one of the most important themes: Clara and the Sun. Mm -hmm. that, that, that says a lot. Now, what we're meant to think of Clara as a kind of, you know, uh, not a, a homo religiosus, but a kind of uh, a religious machine. Mm -hmm. It's interesting that you mentioned the sacred. So 
one of the interesting things I think uh, that I like to do in my research when you're talking about that technology is think about the nature and uh, technological divide. So, so what is natural and what is technological? And there are certain parallels in these kind of conceptual distinctions with the traditional distinctions between the natural and the supernatural. And I kind of want to use these uh, both uh, both pairs to understand each other. And one thing I find interesting is that Clara does not seem to really have an, an, a, a distinction between the natural and the technological. So everything just seems, you know, the same to her. And so we might even say that by extension of the breakdown between the natural and the technological, she no longer sees a distinction between the natural and the supernatural. That's why she can see, you know, the sacrality, the sacredness of all things, including the kind of temple-like, uh, quality of the barn and uh, and indeed the, the way in which you know in some sense god uh, the sun <laughs> beg your pardon <laughs> core summons uh, uh clara to uh to uh, to find him mm. using that um pronoun advisedly it's interesting in the conversation i have with sarah and jeremiah they jeremiah used the word construct that clara kind of constructs this mythology of the sun to make sense of her world. But I don't think that's at all what, what's actually happening. And, and I say that with, you know, charity, because obviously a part of the fun of reading a book is disagreeing about it. But I think that what Clara is doing is less of a construction and more of a discovery, you know, that this is how she's just encountering the world. And the second thing it made me think of is, you know, there, there's that passage in the gospels where Jesus says, you know, the, the stones or the rocks will cry out. And there's almost this sense in which when the whole world is kind of broken down in Clara's world, um, she is the robot that is perceiving sacrality in the world. You know, she is, she is kind of the rock, the thing that we should assume would be inanimate. I think we should assume wouldn't perceive the, the supernatural, but she's there perceiving it and um, in some ways calling other people to see it. We should probably eventually dive into the chapter itself um, I'm just going to, oh, I want to ask you all something quickly. Michael, you mentioned a word, which to me seems quite important to kind of the world of this book, but that we ha I haven't yet with any other guests actually discussed, which is the word transhumanism. What does transhumanism mean? Yeah, so transhumanism um, in its contemporary uh, usage of the term, because it actually goes back to Dante, um, talking about a, a, a human which is transcending themselves, but um, it is an ideology or a philosophical movement that literally has something called the transhumanist, was it the World Transhumanist Association, which I think goes by something called Humanity Plus, is uh, what it's now called, but it's essentially the idea that um, human beings have always uh, been in flux and change and they ought to use any and every means, particularly uh, science and technology, especially technology to transcend what it means to become human. So this means utilizing uh, what are often referred to as GRIN technology. So genetics, robotics, informatics, and nanotechnology to basically um, enhance ourselves, um, make ourselves better, lift ourselves in the parlance of, of the book itself. So transhumanism is this ideology that that says we aren't all that we are meant to be, nor that we all could be, um, but that we ought to, yeah, transcend ourselves. And this has an interesting relationship with humanism and also humanity, 
I think this is what's interesting is I, I've written quite a lot on this. I think they, they say you can't live a good life as a human being. Mm. The only way you can live the life that you want and be happy is to transcend yourself through genetic manipulation, through mm. mind uploading. Um, perhaps I should say a bit about this as well. This is a, a, another particular um, belief amongst a subset of transhumanists, which is this idea that you can reverse engineer your nervous system or your brain and basically transfer it to computer-based hardware. So that the Joy Clarkson, which is before me in flesh and blood, goes through some kind of procedure that takes all of the neural synapses in your brain and it gets modeled into a computer and surprise out the other end comes AF Joy. Well, that sounds rather familiar. Okay, so um, we've picked kind of three scenes that seem significant. This is kind of a monster of a, of a section, I think. A lot happens. Um, I'll give the quick overview, which is simply to say that um, the whole crew, except for Melania Housekeeper, much to Melania Housekeeper's chagrin, go to the city, ostensibly for Josie to go have her her portrait made, but we soon discover that it's really Clara that is meant to be there to see if she can uh, function basically as, as Josie, kind of train this AF that's made to look exactly like Josie, should Josie die. And then we kind of see various conversations with the father who we meet, and, um, and we see kind of the struggle that Rick is having to function in a world where he is not lifted. I think very quickly, do we know at the stage what lifting means? Yeah, I think we finally find out in, in this section that it is ge like genetic modifications, presumably at a younger age. Mm. And it's, it actually says gen genetic editing on page 274 in my edition, but I, I think we've all got different editions and hardbacks different from the paperback. And but I, I did I did notice that. And the other thing that we know about lifting is that it has health dangers, yeah. basically, that the reason Josie is the way she is is because she has been lifted. Um, so with, why don't we start with uh, the scene that you chose, Michael? Yeah, I, I wanted to highlight a particular scene where Clara is at Mr. Capaldi's. And I'll, I'll read um, a bit of this section from the text. I need to hear, the mother said, I need to hear Clara what you think about what you saw. I apologize for examining the portrait without permission, but in the circumstances, I felt it best to do so. Okay, the mother said. And again, I saw she was fearful rather than angry. Now tell us what you thought, or rather tell us what you think you saw up there. Well, I'd suspected for some time that Mr. Capaldi's portrait wasn't a picture or a sculpture, but an AF. I went in to confirm my speculation. Mr. Capaldi has done an accurate job of catching Josie's outward appearance, though perhaps the hips should be a little narrower. Thank you, Mr. Capaldi said. I'll bear that in mind. It's still a work in progress. The mother suddenly lowered her face into her hands, letting her hair hang over them. Mr. Capaldi turned to her with an expression of concern, but didn't move from his spot. The mother wasn't crying, though. She said through her hands, her voice muffled, maybe Paul's right. Maybe this whole thing's been a mistake. Chrissy, you mustn't lose faith, said Mr. Capaldi. She brought her head back up and her eyes were now angry. It's not a matter of faith, Henry. Why are you so sure I'll be able to accept that AF up there? 
however well you do her. It didn't work with Sal. Why will it work with Josie? What we did with Sal is no comparison. We've been through this, Chrissy. What we made with Sal was just a doll, a bereavement doll, nothing more. We've come a long, long way since then. What you have to understand is this. The new Josie won't be an imitation. She really will be Josie, a continuation of Josie. You want me to believe that? Do you believe that? I do believe it. With everything I'm worth, I believe it. I'm glad Clara went in there and looked. We need her on board now. We've needed that for a long time because it's Clara who will make the difference, make it very, very different this time around. You have to keep faith, Chrissy. You can't weaken now. But will I believe in it? When the day comes, will I really? So I love this scene. Um, this is in many ways, I think, uh, the height, I think, of, of the book in, in many ways where you get the, the penny drops, um, the foreshadowing of uh, Clara's imitation of Josie is one, not just of a kind of a crutch, but no, a very real sense of everybody else ought to relate to Clara being transformed into Josie as if Clara were then Josie. And what I find fascinating and intriguing about this isn't, of course, the, well, it is the kind of technicalities of, will this be kind of possible? And you certainly get that right from the perspective of Mr. Capaldi, who wants to say, look, well, it's his entire job, <laughs> right? To basically mm. convince people that what he is doing is um, selling them this idea that um, we can uh, solve bereavement through uh, these particular AFs created to help um, carry on a person. But um, it's the way the mother responds, I think, to it, which I think to be utterly fascinating and really at the heart of what makes this story so prescient and important for today because of the way it, it makes us think about our relationship with artifacts in the world. Mm. What does it mean to have a relationship with a computer, with a cup, with a lamp, with a tree? Um, to treat it as more than just uh, what um, those in uh, personalist philosophy might say in it, but can we treat it as a thou, as a you, in person-like ways? And in one sense, I think, look, we do this all the time. I mean, you know, uh, old cars, we say, you know, if it's difficult to start, we say, oh, she's a little bit cranky this morning or something, right? We personify things all the time. And that is deeply uh, and abidingly human. And it goes to this whole issue of an enchanted kind of universe that we, um, we see the world um, as. Um, but yet what we see here with the mother is an intuition that there are times at which we go too far with ascribing mm -hmm. that certain kind of personalism. Mm -hmm. And it then makes you start to think about, well, what are the grounds? What are, what are the barriers? What are the limits of AS? 
So something that I think is interesting to introduce here, I've been listening to some interviews with the author about the book. And when he originally had the idea for this book, it was as a children's book. He'd wanted to do something illustrated and he was interested in how children relate to things like teddy bears or dolls as almost as, as human, as a, as a thou. And so that was kind of the idea behind Clara was this sense of how we can relate to objects as, as thous. But it's also interesting when you connect it with that idea of enchantment. Uh, it reminds me of, I was listening recently to an interview with Robin Wall Kimmerer, who's a biologist who wrote this book called Breeding Sweetgrass. And it's basically about how you know, the Western way of seeing nature is destroying it because we relate to it as something that's an inanimate. Whereas once you get down to the biological level, like things really do act. They act, it, it acts in personal like ways. And so she has this whole kind of elaborate idea of referring to nature by not he or she or it, but kind of as something that's not he or she or it, but is, has a beingness as she describes it. Yeah. Um, and I think that's an interesting question, which is, does all, does all of creation, does everything physical, does it, is it just inanimate? Is it, is it, or is there something that's like a thingness to it? But the other side of that, I think, is it's not just how do we relate to Clara, right? It's not just the question of, should we relate to Clara as a thou? It's also the question of what makes a person a person? And something I find interesting is the similarity between the mother's and Rick's concern about uh, Josie. They both have this desire for Josie to continue as she is in a, with a sense of continuity. So, right. So Rick, when he kind of joins forces with Clara says, you know, if Josie keeps doing down this path, she'll change and she won't be Josie anymore. Um, but there's this sense that in the mother's anxiety about Josie dying, there's also this sense of that death is this discontinuity and that by creating this AF, she wants there to be a continuity for Josie, uh, that there's a continuation of her. But then that brings up this question of, but is continuity really a good way to evaluate what a person is, right? If we say, well, who you are is, it's all these various kind of, I can say, well, Josie's, you know, precocious and she has brown hair and she has a limp. She, you know, these kind of qualities. And for Josie to keep being Josie is to extend those um, in perpetuity. But of course, the thing that the mother is struggling with as she's looking at this AF and thinking about how she relates to it is, is that really what makes Josie Josie? Um, is that since is continuity what makes a person a person? Well, and not only that, but also given the fact that she is ill, right? I mean, mm. I imagine part of what Clara is trying to work out is what do I imitate? Yeah. What what do they want me to imitate of, of Josie? Do, which, shall I keep this limp? At what stage do yeah. I do this? You know, if she's close to death and yeah. is no longer to be able. So what is the prime version, right, of, of Josie such that I will kind of continue? Right. Well, and it's interesting because she, when she sees the portrait, she says that her hair is drawn back, like her hair is drawn back on her sick days, um, that she looks thin. So there's a sense that her fragility has been continued, even in the portrait, um, and that that's yeah. a part of what the other humans have become attached to in Josie. Yeah. A, a, a brief digression into something called disability theology. I don't know if you've come mm -hmm. across this for those particular listeners. Um, Related to this is this idea of what <laughs> um, 
our conceptions around what a perfect human being ought to look like, certainly in kind of Christian theology, have been conditioned by being abled, right? Mm -hmm. So when we think about what our perfect glorified bodies are meant to, to be like, what we really want to be, or um, and what disability theology, I think, complexifies is that particular vision, right? Mm -hmm. And and certainly has something to bear here as well in terms of perfection, imperfection, mm -hmm. what it means to be who I am as related to those kinds of ideas and concepts. Uh, so if you want to expand on that, so one way in which the in, in disability theology kind of comes about is, well, whether people now with um, certain disabilities or accessibility issues will um, still have such features at the eschaton or the resurrection. Because you can go, well, if it's a disability, um, surely they'll be healed of something. But then would they still have the same, would they still be the same person without that feature? And one interesting thing here is in the New Testament, you get the resurrected Christ with the wounds that he received from death. So is that an imperfection? Um, so some people use that to build a disability theology of the resurrection into this. And, and, uh, and so that's just to add to Michael's point um, and give a case there. So I will add to that as well. And that, that really ties in with the question of continuity, right? Um, the sense that in a Christian vision, what we are is, you know, Paul says, we won't sleep, but we all be changed. And even Christ's body, which has resurrection, which has, which has his scars and his resurrection is not recognized. Um, I'm going to do a little name drop here, which is that I had John Swinton on the show two years ago. And of course he writes on disability and, um, and I was very starstruck and, but I had always had this kind of question of this, this particular question of resurrection bodies. And he said this very kind of helpfully. He was like, well, it's, when you look at Jesus, he's so fundamentally changed the resurrection body. People can't recognize him but it's still who he is. And you have that sense in Paul where he talks about, you know, the radical difference between a seed and a plant, but the sense that the seed and the plant, that there is continuity, but the resurrection makes something so hugely changed uh, that it might be difficult to recognize. And he said, basically, the distance between, you know, my able-bodied resurrection and someone who may have, you know, a quote-unquote disability, um, it, it will still, it will be such change and such continuity that it almost wouldn't make a difference, right? The sense that Jesus, like, it's it's a, it's an almost humorous thing for all of us who are like, maybe for the moment have able bodies, but we're all going to die uh, within the next 50 years to be like, well, but my body will be exactly the same um, in the eschaton. You know what I mean? It's kind of a strange thing, but it gets back to that almost idolatry of continuity, the sense that we want we want things to stay the same, that for Josie to be Josie, she has to not progress. But a part of loving people, and I think this is a big part of the book too, is what is it to be human and how do we love? A part of loving someone is loving them and being willing for them to change, sometimes even to change in ways that make them grow further from us. Um, and so, but that all gets down to that question of what is a human? That, that reminds me of um, a poem by Keats called Ode on a Grecian Urn, mm -hmm. which is all about uh, capturing this particular moment between two lovers who are just about to kiss, but 
you know, never do it. And this is kind of set up as this, the moment before kind of consummation, you know, of, of the kind of kiss is like the aesthetic distance, which is like its purity and its kind of desire. And yet, because it's, it's almost um, elegiac, because it's um, sorrowful, because it's frozen, they won't actually mm -hmm. get to do anything. So this sense of kind of freezing something as well also rob robs it, I think, of its, of its dynamism and what makes something great and virtuous and lovely and beautiful. Mm -hmm. Robbing it of its ability to unfold. Um, yeah, that's part absolutely. of its nature. Yeah. So if you all don't mind, I think this might be a good place for us to begin moving into the next. Can I uh, push, pull back a bit from the poetry and all that stuff and make it make this a lot more robotic, <laughs> given my pro Clara stance <laughs> that I said earlier, and just to bring in some logic here. So I think there's a logical conundrum here when we ask the question whether in this world, in, in the fictional world here, we can, one can befriend the AF mm. or not, the artificial technological device. So there'll be two positions. One would be, yes, we can. B would be, no, we can't. So if we go to position A, that we can. Um, actually, no, so let's go to position B first. No, we can't. So simply, that means Clara can't replace Josie. So that won't work. What about position A? Yes, we can. So yes, if we can, if if Clara is really a friend of Josie's or Rick's or whatever, then she still can't replace um, Josie in the sense that we will lose Clara if she becomes Josie. So there is that kind of paradox there, um, uh, just just here. But I, I just I just thought I'd just throw it in in here as we start to think a bit more about these issues. Yes. Yes. So this is getting down to the question then of what makes a human a human? And um, to explore this question, I wanted to go to um, the section where Clara is talking with um, with the father. Um, and this is, he's this interesting character uh, who we kind of get snapshots of, you know, Helen kind of implies that he lives in this like slightly fascist uh, commune, but we're not really sure what that means. Um, but he's this, he's interesting because while I think that in some ways the mother, if a part of being human is being conflicted and being, we'll talk more about being lonely, the mother is in some ways the most human character. She is, she is both deeply selfish and deeply loving. She both wants to believe this will work and doesn't. She, there's always these kind of conflicts happening in her. But what's funny with the father is that he, he's almost more despairing. He almost believes that he can just upload Josie and that this will work. He's in the yes, yes camp, but he doesn't want it to happen. So then he has this conversation with Clara in the car. And I want to note too, that this uh, happens outside um, of the, the meat, uh, grinder own meat factory. Um, and we can get to that in a second, but there's this sense of kind of highlighting the, there's Clara who's technological, who's gonna go destroy the Cootings machine by drawing a little bit of, you know, mechanical liquid from her ear and contrasting that with the grinder own meat and the sense of fleshiness and creatureliness and bodies. So I think there's, I think it's meant to be kind of juxtaposed. So in this conversation, um, this is what Paul uh, says to Clara, the father. Then let me ask you something else. Let me ask this. Do you believe in the human heart? 
I don't mean simply the organ, obviously. I'm speaking in the poetic sense. The human heart. Do you think that there is such a thing? Something that makes each of us special and individual? And if we just suppose that there is, then don't you think in order to truly learn jo Josie, you'd have to learn not just her mannerisms, but what's deeply inside her? Wouldn't you have to learn her heart? So I thought this, this scene is significant for many reasons, but one of them is it's just kind of bringing to the foreground this question of, um, the question of A, if there is something like a soul, something that's in each person that, that is, can't be attributed just to the information that you could download from their brains and put into another AF. Um, but also just fundamentally, it's the question of kind of what is a human being? What makes a human being individual? Um, so yes, yeah, so what do you guys, what are your thoughts on the scene and that question in general? I thought it was interesting that the answer that Clara gives is yes. So do you believe in the human heart? And then she says yes, because it, it seems almost evident to her, which I find fascinating. Um, Michael, what did you think? Yeah, and then she goes on, he says like, well, what if you imagined, right, that the human heart was like um, a house with many rooms? You know, right? And then Clara uh, says, well, I'd go into those rooms, I'd study it. But what if there was rooms inside of rooms so, and then Clara makes this judgment if I recall correctly um but at the end of the day there is a limit right mm. to being to those rooms because human beings are bounded we are contingent we are um creaturely creaturely in that respect that there is <laughs> and so it is playing out this whole idea of that there are depths even amongst ourselves we don't know and yet you know, in terms of certainly, a, let's say, a doctrine of creation or something like this, it's like, no, no, we aren't infinite in the sense that God himself is infinite, which I see as proto-theology in the background of, of this conversation. I, I wondered whether there's actually a, a kind of implicit reference to Teresa of Avila's in the interior castle with, the, you know, the many mm. dwelling rooms inside the soul. Yeah, uh, dwelling places Yes, yes. For those of you who haven't read um, The Interior Castle, which you should read, Trees of Avila imagines the human soul as this, this castle where you can pass through each room deeper and deeper into the, the inner dwellings of the soul. And that as you pass into each place, you come to know both yourself, but also you discover God uh, who is kind of within you and um, that there's this mutual relationship between self-knowledge and knowledge of God. Mm. Um, King, did you want to say the thing you wanted to say about how the father refers to um, to Josie and how that could relate to this question of what makes a person a person? Yeah, I I don't know if um, if this was intended in the novel as a whole, but it was interesting that you know the, it's very striking that the father as a nickname, if we think of it as a nickname, it could be more than a nickname uh it could be a more uh, a, a manifesto of sorts but the, the nickname let's say that the father gives to josie is always animal or indeed mm -hmm. wild animal as he first sees her uh, and so you can one can i'm not sure this is intended but one can see this as a blatant rejection of a kind of mechanistic understanding or association of the human being so to emphasize the animal quality 
of the human. And so if I may ramble on for a bit, you, you, this whole association of um, the way in which um, the human has been defined in you know, the West, Western classical philosophy is the uh, um, the zoon logon ekon, which is the um, the zoon means the life. So the living being, or sometimes translated as animal, that has logos. So that has either word, language, or reason. So this mm-hmm. kind of shifts between um, ancient and medieval philosophy. But but the the zoon part, the life part the animal mm. part has always been kept somewhat until modernity when you know René Descartes comes and rejects that because he kind of thinks that you know human beings are so different from um, mm. animals because we have this immortal uh, well immortal as well but also this immaterial um, mm. um, thinking soul which animals do not have uh, and so he refuses this um, attribution of animality to humans and starts to understand that which is not the, um, the soul, namely the bodily, uh, in terms of mechanistic functions. So he, that's why he sees animals as machines and draws mm-hmm. this big distinction between uh, uh, the thinking human and um, these kind of uh, me- mechanistic animals. Mm-hmm. And note, this is also what gives rise, or what's co- co- coincidental with the rise of early modern science, when we have such thinking about the human body as a machine that we can fix um, with mod, uh, with early modern medicine and operations, uh, and so there's this kind of I don't know if this is an overreading of this kind of <laughs> quote unquote nickname that's going on. Um, uh, this kind of somewhat um, uh, 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 transhumanist skeptic that we have yeah. in the father, and being playing a certain role in the story to 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 say let's yeah let's uphold this traditional animalistic conception of the human being. Mm. Yeah, he has this kind of recurring desire to remind us of that. And I think that, again, almost humorous, almost like satirically is thrown into contrast to with the with the meat factory, you know, that they're in front of the grinder of meat, this reminder that you are fleshly, that you are, that you are limited. And I think, Michael, that goes back to your, what you're saying about transhumanism, that there's this sense that at the core of a transhumanist kind of motto would be the idea that to be to flourish, you have to become something more than human, something more than grandeur of meat, something more than um, the living being with reason. Yeah, no, and uh, that's certainly the case. I mean, um, one of the most famous transhumanist philosophers called Nick Bostrom, uh, who's at uh, University of Oxford, has this wonderful um, letter, um, I guess a kind of imagined letter that he himself would write to his transhuman self, or sorry, sorry, it's the transhuman self writing a letter back to his current human self. And and it's basically all the ways that he ought to enable his transhuman self. And one of the things he says is, your body is a death trap. This whole idea of the way in which you see your very embodied life is seen as a stumbling block to your very self-actualization. So um, it's lamented that we are bounded, that we are embodied, that we are material. Um, it's very Gnostic, I think, in that sense. It's, it, it's, um, that's part of our deep and abiding vulnerability, our greatest weakness, our, um, yeah, the thing that we really want to react against. 
it's it's a rejection of the idea that something in your specific fleshly body uh it's, it's a rejection of that as kind of a limitation of your continuation um so Say a bit more about that well if there is this sense you know the father is saying you know you little animal and he's he's driving home the fact that he's, he's kind of stating that what that's what Josie is um, you are mortal yeah, you are mortal. There's something unique in you. He clearly kind of wants to say to Clara, but there's too many rooms. You could never, you know, you could never continue going inside. You could never find the center of Josie because there's so much there. That's his impulse. Mm. Um, it's, you have to reject that to want to continue. You have to reject that kind of sense of both the limited and unlimited self, you know, the sense of the fleshly human being, but also there being something that can't pass beyond this individual me to want to try to upload your soul. So, so something that um, I've thought about, and I don't want to lead us too far astray, but I, I, something that was a major theme that I saw kind of coming out in, in the book was related to the idea of continuity and discontinuity. But what I see Ishiguro kind of playing at and, and um, highlighting in parallel is the way in which the mother wants to create a kind of continuity with Josie by this kind of transhumanist artificial means, but then also the way that Clara tries doing it right through the sun. Mm. Interesting. And asking, you know, for um, basically the sun's pardon to bring life, to bring mm. continuity so that there isn't the, um, you know, um, that that Josie won't die. And I see this as kind of um, the parallelism between them, I think is really interesting. And it kind of asking, is there is there a proper way, a proper medium or a mode by which continuity and discontinuity of the self or the person ought to, well, to, to carry on. Um, mm. And I see both those kinds of things certainly in our contemporary world being spoken out with, we're talking about traditional religion and also something like transhumanism, technological means, that kind of thing. Yeah, well, there's this sense that we want what we love and who we love to continue. We don't want it yeah. to, to disappear, to have this kind of final and frustrated end. But there's a question of, is, a, is ending something we simply have to accept if we want to yeah. respect the kind of thing that a human is? Or is there something like a continuation, either technological or spiritual, that's possible? Yeah. So the desire is yeah. the same in either case. Absolutely. So I think as we start to get down to this question of um, what does it mean to be human, we're really asking, you know, is it is there a difference between humans and AFs? Um, Let's pivot, I think, to the scene that you want to talk about, King, and then chat a bit about how that plays into this question. Yeah, so the scene that I thought I'd like to draw our attention to um, comes in when the, um, the gang gets back to the friend's apartment. And, um, and basically, um, Josie and Clara have a very, very brief conversation in the so-called second bedroom. And, and there is this, um, how should I put it? I'll just read this out. Um, so Clara is telling um, Josie about one of the mother's plans to, um, uh, about the immediate future. 
and, and Josie's not particularly happy about it. And so Clara responds to her saying, perhaps, I said eventually, the mother thought if she stayed with Josie all the time, Josie would be less lonely. Who says I'm lonely? If that were true, if Josie really would be less lonely with the mother, then I'd happily go away. But who says I'm lonely? I'm not lonely. And Clara responds, perhaps all humans are lonely, at least potentially. Now, I thought that was quite a striking um, um, statement because it, it seems to me this is, in some sense, the definition of human that has been given um, so far in the book. And I, I, I think it's interesting that, okay, so at least potentially, we can read that as yes, all humans are at least potentially lonely when they're not actually lonely. So loneliness is a potential that humans can actualize. Put differently, we can say that all human beings have the potential or capacity to be lonely. And this to me raises the question, well, can an AF be lonely? And my hunch is AFs don't seem to experience loneliness. Um, they're very aware of it. That, so we, we see, you know, uh, uh, Clara being worried about um, the loneliness of, 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 of Miss, Miss Helen at, at some point or, or, or of the other kids. Or, you know, as I think uh, as you and uh, um, Sarah and Jeremiah talked about in the uh, second on the second part on the morning coffee uh, uh, routine. Um, so loneliness is kind of this um, preoccupation of the AF or at least of Clara. But it, I don't feel Clara is ever lonely. She seems quite happy just to observe things, um, even when she's alone. And so it seems to me that, you know, even if... Um, Clara can somewhat replace and reproduce a lot of the behaviours of um, Josie should the day come that Josie needs to be replaced. Clara would not have this ability to mm. imitate or, or capture the potency towards or the potential uh, capacity of being lonely that, um, that uh, uh, Josie definitely experiences. So if I may make, make this kind of deduction to say that, well, maybe the, the key point um, or the key distinction of the human or of human essence is this capacity to be, um, or to experience loneliness. What do you guys think about that? Well, I, I, I'll just respond and I'll say, I think, I think that's why I wanted to save this passage for last. Um, I think, it's interesting to think about why humans are lonely. Uh, one of the things that strikes me, and I think that's enjoyable, uh, Ishiguro talked about having Clara as the narrator as a clean tool because there's this sense in which she, she's very simple. She sees things in a very simple way. And she has this kind of singular motivating desire, which is um, to, she, I think she, her purpose in life is to keep Josie from being lonely, right? And in some ways, that's a technology that's already developed. There are already kind of care robots for people in older homes. Um, but her simplicity is contrasted with the complexity and the complexity that leads to loneliness and everyone around her, right? A part of the reason that you see um, loneliness is because there's this sense of 
how many desires and impulses, good and bad, can wage within people, making them both very distinctive, right? The fact that we can have these complex layered personalities, this capacity for love, this capacity for, for cruelty, is a part of what makes humans so distinctive, right? We're not AS. We don't have just one drive in life. We don't just go around. But it's also a part of what makes them individual and makes them makes them lonely. Um, so I guess I'm just in a rather rambling way saying that I think that you're right. Um, but I think the other thing that I would say is that the capacity for loneliness also implies the capacity for connection, the capacity for communion, perhaps in a way that Clara has not experienced. And a part of that's because it's this meeting of, um, of desire, but also the ability to give uh, in a way that perhaps because Clara doesn't think very often, we, well, we don't know. I don't, I don't actually think he has like neat answers for all these things, right? I don't think that the goal of this is just to have a clean answer. But I think that um, the complexity and the conflictedness of characters that makes them lonely also means that when they are seen, they can really commune in a way that maybe Clara isn't able to. I don't know. What do you think, Michael? Yeah, something else I want to bring into this gradation of loneliness for us to consider is um, human beings can still be lonely in relationships. I mean, it reminds me of this uh, wonderful um, book, actually, with I'm surprised we haven't mentioned it yet. Um, there's an MIT psychologist called Sherry Turkle, if you've ever come across her work, who has worked for the last 40 years on human interactions with sociable robots and um, has done countless TED Talks. She's you know, the, the person that people mention the most um, when it comes to looking at how humans relate to robotics, artificial entities, that kind of thing. And she has this great book called Alone Together, Why We Expect More From Technology and Less From Each Other. Mm -hmm. And it strikes me, this whole issue of loneliness is part of our expectation as human beings out of certain kinds of relationships that we want. Um, the um, estranged um, uh, marital partner who is not getting enough out of their spouse or after 30 years feels lonely and yet is still in a particular kind of relationship, right? Um, you might have a particular strain with a friendship right? Because the different levels of commitment and what you're expecting out of it. Um, and what I think is interesting is, can, does Clara or AFs feel the same kind of loneliness because of a thwarted desire for something more? So I think of, for example, um, the different AFs that she would kind of view as uh, in the very first scene or the very first part, right? Where the AFs were she was kind of reading into, you know, uh, the relationship that um, the AF would have with with the owner or the the friend, um, because it's walking behind, and but yet there is something distinct about Clara, and even the way that Clara and Josie chose each other, right? A kind of sense that there was something deeper that would Clara just be happy with that kind of relationship? Is, does she experience, if, if Josie didn't, if Josie had um, 
responded like those others, would she be lonely? Would, would those desires be thwarted? This is an interesting question. I think that we have to all keep ourselves from saying what we already know with the ending, because I think the ending is, this is something maybe for people to keep in mind, um, is to ask this question of what we've experienced of Clara so far. And then once we get to the ending, um, the question of does Clara experience loneliness? Because this is clearly a pervasive thing that all of the humans that she encounters experience. Although she's also kind of attuned to notice it because her whole purpose in life is to keep people from being lonely. Um, Can but I, I um, make an ob observation yeah. here I mean, about the purpose, well, maybe not life for, for Clara, but the sole purpose of Clara is, well, what is this? What is Clara trying to achieve in all of this? As you were indicating here, it's to prevent loneliness. But there is a second one, which is to, as she quote unquote, prays to the sun or petitions to the sun, is to stop um, Josie from dying. So mm -hmm. there are two, th they seem things seem to be coextensive in a way. So to prevent loneliness and to prevent um, her friend's death. So death mm -hmm. and loneliness seem to come together quite uh, strongly. And my suspicion is actually loneliness is a more uh, important category in the two. And we might uh, speculate that, um, you know, death is in fact a condition of loneliness mm -hmm. in, in the sense that when one dies, one becomes truly lonely. When, when no, uh, so to allude to the 20th century German philosopher Martin Heidegger, who describes death as the ownmost possibility of one's existence. By ownmost, uh, this is the English translation, obviously, but by, by ownmost, he means it's the utmost thing that every human will have to encounter. But it's also ownmost in the sense that we have to counter itself on our own that you know no one can die or no one can experience our death someone can die in your place for something but they cannot experience it for you. Mm. you your death is always to be experienced by yourself and in some sense that is a truly lonely act that we have to do mm. so in, in this sense we can see how you know if we follow heidegger <laughs> to say that you know this almost possibility is a distinctive feature of human experience we can see how you know this connects to the possible declaration of um, the, uh, um, saying that all humans are potentially lonely in, in as the kind of distinctive feature of um, human existence. And, and drawing this back to the book, um, I think it um, makes sense then why Clara actually assents to the mother and saying, you can be Josie for us. So if it's the case that, sadly, if Josie were to no longer be around, um, there isn't an entity for Clara to aid in not being lonely any longer. And yet her functioning, her drive, her purpose is to keep people from loneliness. And so the mother petition says, could you do that for, for Rick? For, for me, you know, the mother says, could you be Josie so that we're not lonely, right? Mm -hmm. And here's this kind of sense of purpose of, ah, if I can't fulfill it with, with, with Josie, then, then perhaps my functioning can be, use my purpose can be um, served yes. elsewhere. I find this whole idea of death as 
kind of the form of a form or the form of loneliness. Interesting, thinking of loneliness as being the more fundamental thing. And it ties in with the very last page of the last chapter where Josie kind of awakens in this panic and it says, I don't, I don't want to die. And there's, and then she's comforted by the presence of the mother. Yeah. Um, so it's like, as she's experiencing this fear of this fundamental loneliness and, and honestly, Josie is this very resilient character in many ways. She's putting up with her own illness. She's putting up with everyone's kind of irrational and conflicted and really pretty selfish responses to her own illness. And she kind of with, with persistence and sarcasm, um, kind of goes on and, 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 and tries to bear with that. Um, I mean, I, I could also get deeply theological here, which is to say, in one sense, one could say that human sin is just loneliness from God or mm -hmm. the wages of sin is death or something mm -hmm. that, that death and loneliness and alienation from from the good, from the source of life, from um, from the very foundation of of not just who you are, but of utter relationality, right? Mm -hmm. Dependence on independence. Um, there's there's some abiding uh, theological reflection that could certainly come come out of something like that. Yeah, the sense that sin is a, a turning away from relationship with God. Yep. Which, we are alone before God or something. Yeah. Turning away, absolutely. And that results in death, which is this kind of, this yeah. form of loneliness too. Uh, yeah, a spiritual death of sorts. Yeah. But as we come to the end of this chapter, we have uh, one of the other themes that we haven't really talked about, but that comes up numerous times from many characters in this chapter is hope. Right. Um, Mr. Capaldi says you have to keep hope. The mother says she's finding hope. Um, the father says something like this, this damn thing, hope, it never leaves you alone. Um, and Clara, even as she is kind of breaking down, you know, when she loses her liquid, she starts to see these kind of distorted images. Um, but she ends this chapter with this kind of, uh, well, she has a frustration of hope because she realizes that there's numerous coding machines and that she hasn't destroyed everything. Um, but, but what do you all think? Do you think that Clara has reason to hope? I mean, knowing what the ending's going to be. I mean, <laughs> if, if, if you've read the, uh, the, the final two parts, um, but whether you're talking about, does Clara have the capacity for hope? Is she a hopeful creature? does part of our question around what it means to be human, not just include the potential to be lonely, um, our relationship with animality, um, but hope. I would say that absolutely needs to be part of, of this, this kind of mixture. And if, as King was saying before, um, one of the major themes is what we need to learn from uh, the AS, we have much to learn from them, is, is certainly you're finding with a father, right? Um, in his most rational sense, you know, doesn't even think that Clara probably is a kind of being beyond just, a, you know, a bit of metal and, and material and certain kind of complex form, is inspiring hope, a hope beyond mm -hmm. hope, a hope that perhaps will lead to Clara becoming well. I mean, not Clara, Josie becoming well. 
Yeah, I mean, in if you get theological, I mean, when when the New Testament talks about hope, um, the most famous one is the one in in First Corinthians where it's connected to love and faith, and there is a sense in which, you know, Clara never doubts the goodness and the faithfulness yeah. and the lovingness of 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 the Son or God, who we just might as well say it out loud, um, and and there is this kind of that actually almost goes through all these kind of like um different ways of accounting for the existence of evil um yeah. that is quite similar to the christian or indeed the broader theistic traditions um so it's she simply just takes the goodness of the sun as um what we might call axiomatic it's just the sun is by def by default and by definition good and so in that regard as long as that she seems to just have has to remain hopeful it's just part of her existence yes and i think it's interesting that you both michael you kind of focused on the father's hope and king you mm. you focused on clara's and their hope in two different kinds of things because i think on some level the father's hope is that she'll get better but he's also almost willing to believe that maybe he could relate to Clara, you know, it's a mechanical hope. It's a hope that technology could bring this continuation. And he even says, he kind of expresses this jealousy of the, the mother getting to have the portrait with her. But Clara's hope is this, this kind of spiritual hope, this, this enchanted sense that the son is good and that the son um, will send his special help, as she calls it, will send his nourishment, that his patterns will uh, prevail. Um, and so we have at the kind of just in this, these two different hopes, these two relationships to the future um, mm. that leave us on tender hooks. Mm. So um, as we draw to the end, do you all have any kind of closing thoughts or things you want people to consider as they journey into the final chapter of Clara and the Sun? I have two words that I might want people to think about. Um, and the first one we've kind of touched on, especially I think when Michael talked about some of this, is um, on how the, the, the similarity between Clara's petition towards the sun and the kind of the portrait project, if you will, the transhumanist project. But both of these, um, in a sense, involve what we might call a transaction or a, or a sacrificial act. So, you know, Clara gives her quote unquote blood <laughs> to destroy uh, uh, um, the machine in, 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 in a way to kind of please the sun or to please God. Um, just as, you know, if that doesn't work out, the other plan, the portrait plan, the transhumanist plan is actually for also, uh, if you will, for Clara to self-sacrifice herself as Clara and become someone else. So there's this kind of transactional logic going on in this chapter, as we see here. And um, I like to see, you know, if people still re haven't read the next bits to think about how that goes on and whether that changes or not. And the other thing that may or may not be related to this is um, the notion of promise. So the manager, the store manager tells Clara not to you know, take promises made to her too seriously. But that's the general inclination that Clarice wants to have. She wants to think that people are trustworthy or promises can be trusted. And she still has faith in some kind of promise from the sun. Um, 
And so I think, yeah, promise and transaction are two notions that I think are good ways, good things to think about as people read on. Thank you. Yeah, I think related to that, the whole issue of um, faith and, and faithfulness in the passage that, that I read um, earlier with the mother saying, what, um, um, asking Mr. Capaldi or telling Mr. Capaldi, will I have enough faith that this is actually going to be Josie once Clara is transferred into it? The whole, it, and yet going back to, I think a few times we've mentioned this, um, that, that King brought up this, this idea of the way in which Clara is a kind of exemplar of, I guess, what we ought to model in some ways, a kind of uh, simplicity towards the world, um, understanding it, the kind of connection of uh, this, the sacredness of it, of, of um, wanting to help people, uh, keep them from kind of loneliness. Um, and this is quite a common common trope in kind of science fiction where the kind of artificial creatures in some ways exhibit things that are more human than the human beings themselves. Think of Wally, for instance, you know, um, first 20 minutes is beautiful, no dialogue, a kind of love story between two different kinds of robots. And yet what are humans in, in this kind of world, but those who are slovenly, who don't care for others. And it, so to be focusing on Clara as a model, a model of faithfulness, a model of hope, a model of love. Mm. Those are both uh, wonderful things to ponder, and I'm I'm sad that our discussions on this book are nearly done. So thank you both so much for joining me, and um, everyone should look out for their writing, particularly those who are interested in transhumanism and theology and theological anthropology. Thank you so much, Michael and King. It's been a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you so much for having us. It's been wonderful to be with you both. <laughs>